Herb Alpert and the Team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest in this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what it follows, as he does every week, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. This edition of Fangraphs Audio begins with a game. Uh, this is a game in which I attempt to explain to Dave Cameron the rules of the qualifying offer, which be, or maybe the rules and parameters of the qualifying offer, and then Dave Cameron tells me where I've uh, been mistaken. We use that to look at some players who were on the qualifying offer bubble, I guess you might call it, such as Angel Pagan, Torrey Hunter, Mike Napoli, and Edwin Jackson. In fact, none of them were given a, a qualifying offer, and they are all now free agents. We discuss their uh, particular situations. We also discuss the situation of Josh Hamilton, who announced sometime over the weekend that his asking price would be seven years and $175 million, which seems like a lot of money and is considerably more than the contract that the Fangraphs readers projected. And our contract crowdsourcing project, which saw the readers project Hamilton to receive a five-year, $100 million deal. So, well, I asked Cameron about that, and, uh, I, you know, he says a bunch of stuff. I can't remember everything because he talks pretty quickly – and that's that's fine. There's now there's an audio document of it. That's what uh, that's what follows. Another thing we talk about is uh, what sort of world in which we might be living when Rafael Soriano is worth uh, decidedly more than ten million dollars per season, or at least uh, will be paid that much. And Dan Heron, a, a successful starting pitcher for some for some time now, is not even able to merit Carlos Marmol in a deal with the Cubs. I also make Cameron discuss Reds prospect Billy Hamilton briefly, a player of, uh, about whom there is much excitement, although one wonders if the, the skills, in particular the his uh, foot speed, will translate into major league wins. So there's a, uh, there's a preview that is designed to whet the reader's appetite uh, metaphorically. Uh, what's, what's coming next is the actual entree, though. That is uh, uh, an episode of Fangraphs Audio featuring managing editor Dave Cameron, which begins right now. And uh, the game is this. It's I try to explain to you the rules for qualifying offers, and then you correct me when I'm wrong. This seems like every week. <laughs> the Okay, so the qualifying offers are a thing. They're a thing that were due this past Friday at 5 p.m. Uh, yes. Okay. And the qualifying offer system, so the game has started. Did you, did you notice that? Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So far, you are one for one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are going to be a lot of, a lot in the denominator. So let's maybe stop counting the, the, mm-hmm. or the numerator, the nominator, the numerator. The nominator is the bottom. The denominator is. Yes. Numerators on top, denominators on the bottom. Well, what's a nominator then? <laughs> is that a person in the electoral uh, college? Yes. Okay. Exactly. You have to ask Nate Silver for that. Okay. All right. So this is a system that is uh, was installed uh, by the new CBA, the new collective bargaining agreement between the Players Association and Major League Baseball. Yeah, at what point do we stop calling it the new CBA? The thing's a year old. Okay, fine. The new-ish CBA. The most recent CBA. But well, It's more it's, of a toddler than a newborn. It's, 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 in the, it's new in the sense that, well, actually, yeah, like, like or so there's human years, right? And then there's dog years. What is a CBA? I mean, how long does a CBA usually last? Four years? Five years? Uh, this one lasts five years, and it's the longest one they've ever signed. Okay, so so in CBA years, it's like 20 already, or like 25. Right. Okay. Yeah, this thing is like, uh, you know, hitting, hitting, its, uh, hitting its stride. It's in the prime of its career. Right, but, but it should also be noted that this is the first time we've had this qualifying offer system. Yes. Okay. New so it used to be that when a player was going to be a, become a free agent, he would be assigned by what, Elias? Using some, yeah, yeah. The Elias came up with the rating system of uh, I don't know 30 years ago, and it stayed around because I don't know why it stayed around. It was terrible. Okay. So and then and then would receive like a Type A designation or Type B designation or a or a nothing designation. Uh, yeah, there used to be Type C too, but they got rid of those a few years ago. Okay. And then that used to 
that used to inform essentially what sort of compensation the the, the player's former team would get. You know, the way that, that the player re, or the team received that compensation is they would have to offer arbitration to the pending free agent. Um, and usually, I mean, if a player was very good, he would probably not accept arbitration because the most he would get out of that is a one-year deal, whereas on the open market, he would, could probably sign a multi uh, a multi-year deal. You're pretty good at this game so far. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, so, well, I did – well, I should I should uh, say that um, whatever expertise I have from this has come from a combination of things. Jeff Sullivan last week wrote a good piece on the qualifying offer. He did. He did, um, and that, and he has some good examples in that. And then um, Tim Dierk Dier- Dier- had, like, a more bullet-pointed type of introduction to it. Yes, MLB trade rumors was bullet points. Right. But I think that they complement each other, the two write-ups on it. Um, yes. Complement with an E, not with an I. Right. Okay. So what is happening now? So what, or what happened on Friday is team, but what's happening now is that, uh, a team can choose to make a qualifying offer to a player and that is the average of like the top, uh, 100? 125. 125 players in the game. Uh, 125 salaries. Right. So like Ryan Howard's included, but you know. Arguable whether he's one of the top 129 players or not. Right. Okay. And there were some players that appeared to be locks to receive that, like Josh Hamilton. Yes. Um, uh, and then players who seemed not like locks, which is everyone who's a free agent is not that good. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. There, there were a lot of free agents who didn't get qualifying offers for good reason. Right. And then Mike Napoli, somewhere in the middle. Uh, yeah. Well, there's actually four guys who I think were kind of considered bubble guys, and interestingly, none of them got qualifying offers. Okay, well, who were they? Let's let's say their names aloud. So, Angel Pagan, who I think is, uh, you know, the contract crowdsourcing had him at 330, and Buster only is floating the idea that he might get a four- and five-year deal. Okay. Uh, Tori Hunter, who I think most people expect to land a two-year deal, uh, and is coming up a five-win season, even though he's 37 years old. Uh, Tori Hunter is generally considered to be good and has a lot of the intangible things that Teams like to pay for um, Edwin Jackson, who you know basically went through this rigmarole last year, took a one-year deal, but doesn't expect to do that again. Uh, and I think most people expect him to land a three-year deal. And then Napoli, as you said, was uh, you know a guy who I, I, I'm not sure anyone knows what's going to happen with him. But if you got Mike Napoli back at 113, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Yeah, right. So with Edwin Jackson, that's interesting, right? You said he expects to sign a multi-year deal. Uh, presumably some other people do as well. I don't think he's ever done that, though. It seems like every year he signs a one-year deal and then is traded. Or, I mean, this last year that wasn't the case. But he has signed, for a pitcher of his talent level, he seems to have signed um, a lot of one-year deals. Right, but he was never, I mean, last year was his first fight at free agency. So all his previous one-year deals were because he was arbitration eligible and he didn't have the ability to go sign a multi-year deal with the team he was on didn't want to give it to him. So last year was kind of the anomaly in that we would have expected Jackson to get a one-year deal, but he kind of fell through the cracks. There are some reports that suggest uh, he turned down a three-year deal with the Pittsburgh Pirates because uh, he didn't want to go to Pittsburgh. So it's not that he couldn't have gotten a three-year deal. It's that he didn't get a three-year deal from a city he wanted to play in. And do, do, does it seem like, uh, given his performance in 2012, that that was sort of the, the, right, deci- the right decision strategically? Maybe. It's hard to say. He was basically exactly the same pitcher last year as he was the year before. There's literally nothing anyone learned about Edwin Jackson in 2012 that they didn't already know 12 months ago. So if, if you weren't sure you wanted to give Edwin Jackson a multi-year deal, well, now he's got 200 more innings and, you know, 3,500 3, pitches more on his arm. He's going to be a little older. Why would you want to give him a three-year deal now when you didn't do it last winter and he's exactly the same? This was in a situation like where Adrian Belfry went to Boston and had a monster year and everyone figured out that he could hit. Uh, you know, Edwin Jackson was the exact same guy he was a year ago. I think the idea is that teams are going to realize that they made a mistake a year ago. Okay, yeah. Or, I mean, could you also make the argument, you, miss, you said that there's probably more wear and tear on his arm. There's, he's also proved that he is that pitcher in even more innings. I mean, is that the counter-argument, or is that is that not a great right. counter I mean, Now his track record is one year longer, but, I mean, he already had three years of, you know, above-average, durable inning-being works. I mean, now yeah, is that fourth year of above average inning being durable work more valuable than three. I mean, I guess I, I would think there's diminishing returns to resume at some point where, you know, 
at three years, four years, it's pretty clear what Edwin Jackson is. And I don't know that anybody should be like, aha, well, now I believe in Edwin Jackson, you know, after 800 innings, but I didn't believe in him after 600. Uh, okay, let's go back just, just to this, the qualifying offers game. So we have here, for example, um, so Pagan, Hunter, Napoli, Edwin Jackson, none of them received um, none of them received qualifying offers, even though it seems uh, likely slash possible that uh, all four of them will receive uh, will certainly receive um, um, some attention in in the free agent market, and at least three out of four of them will sign multi year deals. Right. I think of those four, Napoli would be the only one I don't think is going to get a multi year deal, and it's possible he lines a you know a two twenty or two twenty two or something like that. Um, so, you know, it's possible that all four of them could end up signing for more than they would have gotten on the qualifying offer. Uh, you know, I think there's also the question of the value of the draft pick now. Is You know, it used to be, and, you know, I'm ruining your game here, but it used to be in the old system, if you had a type A free agent you offered them arbitration, you would get the pick of the team that signed them as long as they weren't in the top 15. Yeah. Uh, so you could get a pick as high as number 16, and you'd get a compensation pick, which is generally in the 30 to 45 range. Um, so for a premium free agent, and most of these guys have stats that would have made them type A, Jackson might have been a borderline guy, but you know, you had a chance to be a type A probably under the old system. Uh, I think you're, you're looking at, you know, two picks in the, you know, maybe in the 20 and 40 range. Uh, under the new system, you're looking at one probably in the 30 to 35 range, you know, because the, the new system doesn't give you the pick of the signing team. It only gives you a pick after the first round ends. And so, you know, maybe these teams look at it and said, hey, you know, I'd rather not take a risk on these guys if it's just going to get me one pick that's, you know, not as valuable as it used to be, especially when you get two picks. Okay, so let's talk about th- those those compensation picks because uh, it seems as though what happens is it's, you're, you're, as you noted, like it's not, the, it's not the new team giving its pick to the old team. The new team's first-round pick just evaporates. Yes, and it goes away. F- it's deleted, essentially. Right, and then the first round shrinks. Yes, every team just moves up a pick at that point. So, you know, I think the example I used in the post I wrote last week is if the Mets decide to sign a free agent who got a qualifying offer, they have the 11th pick in the draft. That's the first pick that's not protected. The top 10 are protected. Uh, the Mets pick would go away, and the Mariners would move from number 12 to number 11, and every, every team would just move up a spot. There are 10 teams that are worse than the Mets and Mariners this year? Yeah, I know. It's pretty amazing, right? The Red yeah, Sox were one of them. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. That reminds me. I don't know how it used to happen. I was just a small child, and I haven't bothered to go back and look. But I know that used to happen to the um, to the Celtics a lot. It seemed is that they would both be the best team and also have one of the top picks in the draft. I don't know why I'm mentioning it to you because you don't you don't care. But yeah, um, well, you mention a lot of things to me that I don't care about. Yes, fact. But it is strange. I guess any time that you think of as like a traditionally strong team. Um, and the Red Sox could very well be like a 90-win team next year, right? Or maybe they couldn't. Yeah, no, they could. I mean, it depends on what they do in trade agency this year. And, you know, a bunch of their guys bounce back and Jacoby Oldsbury is another monster year. I mean, you know, it's possible that they could win 90 games next year. Right. But so in any case, but it, it's a, I guess it's strange to see that. It's like, um, I mean, and, you know, the way the draft system is structured in, you know, drafting in reverse order of, of standings, it's meant to help the bad teams. And in this case, yes, the Red Sox were a bad team uh, th- this past year, um, but it seems like they're probably going to – they don't necessarily need that sort of benefit. But here's the thing I want to ask, okay? So the first round, we see those picks evaporate. Now, the, those uh, compensation picks – it used to be two picks, I think, right? It used to be like the, the team's pick and then another sandwich pick for type A. Yeah. Okay, but it's not anymore. Right. Now, it, the sandwich pick is now called the compensation pick. I mean, I was always kind of called that. But now it's just that pick, and that pick happens immediately after the first round. So okay. those picks have moved up slightly because they used to be after 30 picks. Now it's going to be after that 26 or 27 picks. Right. And now what else, what other sort of, what other picks are happening? Because I think there's also like a, what, a low-income draft round? There's like a welfare round. Yeah, there's a lottery uh, round for teams that uh, receive revenue sharing and didn't spend too much money. There's a, basically a, a formula that says these teams need extra help, so we're going to give them uh, draft picks after the compensation round. So after um, the picks the, a team will get for losing a free agent, then there's another 
round that goes to these little revenue teams, and because Major League Baseball likes to be uh, screwy sometimes, those picks can be traded. Other picks in the draft cannot. So we actually saw the Marlins trade one of their, uh, or at least the Pirates traded one of their compens- their low revenue picks to the Marlins in order to get Yabby Sanchez. So um, for the first time in baseball in the draft, you can actually trade draft picks, but only these specific welfare picks. And so the other ones are that um, it seems complicated, but maybe it's not. Maybe we'll just get used to it. Maybe I'll just get used to it. You seem to be fine with it. Uh, I mean, it's not that complicated, and I think most people don't care, right? Like, I mean, for the most part, they don't pay attention to the draft until the day of, and then, you know, they read on BaseballAmerica.com who they pick the next day, and they don't really uh, need to know all the ins and outs of how right. the draft actually works. Right, and I assume, I mean, I assume the teams are, are, are like, trying to evaluate how to, um, you know, use the new advantage or the new system to their advantage. I, I mean, Presumably the Pirates thought that the pick was less important than having Gabby Sanchez? Yeah, I mean, I think they looked at, you know, hey, we're trying to upgrade. We are trying to win without mortgaging our future. Here's a pick that, you know, is probably going to be essentially a second rounder. I mean, it's going to be in a slot that would have been equivalent to a second round pick. Uh, is giving up a second round pick better than the prospects you already have in our system. And, you know, when you factor in the fact that you have to pay that guy a signing bonus and that's a couple million dollars that maybe you can reallocate to your major league roster, um, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that those lottery picks or those uh, welfare picks, whatever you want to call them, aren't super valuable. Okay. All right, let's talk about a player who received a qualifying offer from um, his former team, the Texas Rangers. That's Josh Hamilton. Yep. Josh Hamilton, uh, despite the fact that the Rangers have quite a bit of money, will likely not be a Ranger next year? Yeah, it seems really unlikely that the Rangers are going to resign him. They basically told him they weren't going to make an offer. They just like let him tell them how much another team offered him, and they'd tell him, you know, thanks or no thanks. Okay, okay. We uh, we uh, did uh, last week, or I mean, over the you know the past three weeks, we did contract crowdsourcing, right? We ask uh, yep. ask readers to uh, to project the likely. Uh, year, years and uh, dollar value amounts that all the free agents, well, I say all, uh, not yeah. Ryan Ludwig, apparently. <laughs> not any relief pitcher who had any kind of injury problems last year. Right. Uh, not any Yankee who might return for another season. There, there were, uh, you know, okay, there were some holes in it. Not. It was almost comprehensive. It was near, it, nearly comprehensive and then wasn't. Yeah. It was super comprehensive, except for all those famous players that didn't get included. Okay, right. So maybe we could address them later in the conversation. But the point being that um, by that process, um, uh, Josh Hamilton's projected contract uh, that he'll receive this offseason is five years, $100 million. Yes, that is what the crowd came up with. That is what the crowd came up with. Some of those numbers look low. um, Most of them look really low. Okay. It'll be interesting to see. Maybe we can assign like an inflation rate. Like, we'll get like a regular inflation rate. So when we do this next year, we can just adjust them all immediately. Yeah, so I think that's kind of the interesting question, right? Is the, the crowd nailed the David Ortiz contract on the on the nose. I mean, they projected him for two twenty six. He signed for two twenty six. Part of that, I think, is there's been a lot of leaks about what David Ortiz wanted, uh, or he basically said he wanted two twenty six or something really close to it. So that was maybe an easier one to project than most of the others. Uh, but I wonder if the crowd is going to be pretty accurate at the low end and really wrong at the high end, which I think it was pretty close to what we saw last year. Uh, you know, I think the crowd had Prince Fielder at like 6135 or something, and he obviously got $80 million more than that. Um, but when you start looking at the, you know, the middle relievers and back end starters, it actually did pretty well. Okay. Is this just because, like, I mean, it really only takes one team, right? I mean, that, that the Tigers were that team. It seemed like all, all offseason – Fielder wasn't getting uh, any offers, and then he got a giant one. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of the, you know, they call it the winner's curse. Is there's one team uh, who's going to find him who obviously thinks he's worth more than the other 29 teams, or those 29 teams would have offered him more. So, um, you know, I think free agency is a little bit of a winner's curse situation, and, you know, it does only take one team to significantly value a guy differently than the rest of the market. Um, in a lot of cases, I think, you know, teams are going to come up with similar valuations, especially for marginal guys where, there's a pretty high substitution effect where you say, okay, if I don't get this right-handed reliever, I can go get another right-handed reliever. At the top end of the market, you know, where there's a Prince Fielder or a Josh Hamilton or a Zach Greinke, there isn't really a substitution. You're either going to get that guy or you're not going to get a guy of that quality. And I think that's when teams can start to make decisions that are 
you know, a little more uh, varied from what the league might expect or what the league, the market itself would value the player at, where they say, you know, I don't have any other options here. I'm just going to pay what it takes to get him. Okay, so with regard to Josh Hamilton, that's who we're talking about here. Uh, w- the crowd has him at 5-100. I yep. believe that reports came out of the Josh Hamilton camp somewhere. It was reported that he his asking price would be 5 175 7175 7 Oh, sorry. Of course. 7 7 175 which is which is more money. Uh, it's 25 yep. million dollars a year. Um, so 5 million more dollars a year in two more years. Yep. Um do we do we assume that he's going to get that? Do we assume that it's going to be somewhere between that and what the crowd is thinking? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think you could probably split the difference. I wouldn't be shocked if he got six one forty or six one thirty five or something, or if you just you know give him an extra year and you know basically cut the difference of the AAV between uh, what the crowd projected at twenty and what he's apparently asking for at twenty five. Um, I think that's probably a reasonable expectation. I think he's definitely going to do better than five hundred. Uh, unless he, you know, gets hurt or starts looking back this offseason or something. I mean, there's obviously scenarios where he could end up getting less, but I think, you know, barring a, a surprise, uh, Hamilton will do better than 500. Um, you know, and I think he probably should do a little better than 500. I think I, I noted in the uh, free agent value post I did on Friday that he reminds me a lot of Jose Reyes last year, where there's just so much focus on the negatives and the risks, where, you know, yes, he's injury-prone, yes, he has a history of drug problems, uh, yeah, he had a two-month slump last year, but at the same time, this is a four-win player. He was an eight-win player a couple of years ago. Uh, this is a really talented player, and we can't just look at the risks and say, oh, that's not that's a guy I don't want because it's too risky. I mean, value is risk and reward on a sliding scale, and when um, you know if there's high risk uh, at a decent price and high reward, uh, that's still something you should be interested in, even though it's high risk. Yeah, right, and it should be noted, uh, and I'm sure that this is a, this is what you're sort of uh, gesturing at is that he set a career high in home runs this past season uh it was i think i believe it was his second highest uh, wrc plus he's ever posted um in a in a in a career that's already been if not if not long uh, at least excellent in, in a short amount of time right hamilton when he plays is one of the best players in baseball the question is how much is he going to play and this is you know with the Jose Reyes comparison again this is the exact same argument we had about Reyes last year is when the Marlins signed him for $106 million, and I called it a bargain, and everyone freaked out, because the assumption is that Jose Reyes is just brittle guys that he hurt every year. We don't really know how to predict injuries. And so what we really do is we just look at guys' past injury histories and assume it's going to continue the same or even get worse as they get older. Uh, it's a really a kind of a wild guess. It doesn't apply to a lot of people. There are a lot of guys who are healthier in their 30s than they were in their 20s. And, uh, you know, when you're trying to, forecast quantity of games played, we should probably be more careful and more willing to just throw our hands in the air and say, we don't really know. I think in general teams are better off paying for quality than they are trying to pay for quantity. Right. And what, what was Ray's contract ultimately? 6106. So he got $16 million a year for six years. Okay, right. And he um, he was worth four and a half wins this year, so that's not bad at all. Yeah, right. I mean, Jose Reyes and Prince Fielder were pretty equivalent uh performers on the field this year, Reyes got half of what Fielder got. So I think, you know, uh, there's an argument that's being made that if you want to get a, a value in free agency, you should look for a guy with a history of injuries because there's no question that teams pay for durability. I mean, here's what Mark Burley got. Uh, you know, I think we've seen that, uh, you know, Barry Vito, when he hit free agency, his, his claim to fame is that he'd never been on the DL and he threw 200 innings every year. Um, John Wackey, I mean, a lot of these guys who are good but not great players who accumulate a lot of value through health uh, get paid really well. And guys who have, you know, a history of DL threats and lingering health problems uh, get discounted really heavily for that. And I'm, I'm not sure that the discount is warranted given how well we can predict future games played. It's interesting because I think at this point you have – there's sort of a, a, a question in the, the thought process of the signing team, right, is because if you have a player – if you're paying a player and he's on the field – even if he's underperforming, you say, well, he's underperforming, but at least he, you know he's on the field, uh, as opposed to paying him a bunch of money to not play at all. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's it, no question that there's a, there's a mental aspect to the, I don't want to be embarrassed by giving a whole um, bunch of money to a guy who's, who's not playing and who, you know, the fans don't even get to see and I have to replace him with some AAA scrub. Uh, there's no question that teams would rather have a guy healthy and underperforming than uh, been injured and on the field. 
Right, because that just uh, looks bad. Now, I, one uh, one team to which I've heard, um, or you know, to which I've heard Hamilton connected is the Brewers. I've seen it from from more than one source, and I'm curious why is this uh, why is this a popular uh, thought to have? Well, I think people are looking around trying to figure out where Josh Hamilton might get a big offer from, right? So, like, if the Rangers aren't going to make it to him, then you have to see another team somewhere that might be willing to, you know, open the floodgates and give Josh Hamilton a lot of money. The Brewers have Jerry Naren on their bench as a as a coach. Naren was Hamilton's accountability partner when he was in Texas. Um, and the two seem to have a pretty decent relationship, so there's one natural fit there. And I think with Ryan Broad and Orlando Ramirez and Corey Hart, you've got three right-handed power hitters, not a lot of left-handed power in that lineup. Um, Hamilton would obviously slide in nicely in between all the right-handers, give them a, an offensive thump uh, to replace Fielder, who they lost last winter. And, you know, I think they have to expect Orlando Ramirez to get worse than he was last year. Um, so it would, you know, help improve their offense. Uh, and I think we've seen that they're, they're willing to be players for guys, uh, you know, when they traded to Cesar Sebastian, they traded to Zach Greinke, so, you know, they're not afraid at the top end of the market. At the same time, I, I think it's probably a little bit overstated. I don't think the Brewers are going to be interested in a six, seven year deal at 20 plus million per year for, uh, for another hitter, especially when they don't have a DH in the National League. Yeah, it seems, uh, it seems strange. No, it will market, I assume, because, you know, the, the Milwaukee, Media market uh, is not regarded as one of the more uh, parasitic or threatening ones, whereas a, you know a, in Boston, for example, it, it's quite the opposite. I mean, is that going to be is that going to play a difference? Do you think both in a team's willingness to sign Hamilton and his willingness to sign there? Maybe. I mean, I, I think this is something that we we kind of just make up, right? Like we speculate that Zach Greinke and Josh Hamilton aren't going to really play in New York and Boston because of their off the field issues. When in reality, uh, you know, Zach Greinke finished his year in Anaheim and seemed to do just fine. Uh, it's a pretty big media market, right? It a decent amount of focus and uh, attention, and, uh, you know, it didn't seem to have any ill effects from all the beat writers asking him questions every day. Uh, you know, Dallas is a pretty major media market. Uh, I don't think we can look at Texas and assume that it's like, you know, Kansas City or Alabama or something. I mean, there's a lot of people in Dallas. The Rangers were in the World Series two straight years. Uh, it's a team that gets a lot of media coverage. They had you Darvish, so the Japanese media followed them around every day. Uh, I don't know that we actually see that either of these guys have thrived in small markets and swapped in big markets. It's just something that we decided to make up, and people have believed for reasons that I don't totally understand. Yeah, and I don't know if there's a way to, to quantify it, but I would say that, generally speaking, the Boston and New York media markets are more prone to outrage um, and uh, and loathing. Loathing, self-loathing, loathing of others. There's a low. I don't know how you would. Maybe you could do like a concordance um, with like all the articles that appear in the the Boston Globe or the, or the Boston Herald, and say like how many times they use the word disappointing and uh, you know loaf loafer. He's he loafs. I don't know if you could. I don't know how you would do it. Could you prepare a study? Do you think based on trying to quantify the how dismal are the attitudes of the the authors of this or that sporting pages? You probably could, and I wouldn't be shocked if Boston came out number one, probably because John, Dan Shaughnessy writes about the Red Sox. But uh, I, I'm still not sure that that's actually much of an incentive for the players. No, I, mean, I know. We don't, well, uh, I guess there's no, there's no telling, right? I mean, also as to the degree to which it affects performance. Yeah, I mean, like, I think if I'm a free agent and my agent tells me, hey, look, the Red Sox are offering 7175 and the Brewers are offering 500 uh, do you want to give up $75 million to have a slightly nicer beat writers in your post-game interviews? I, I would laugh at him and tell me they'd give me $75 million, and I would hire like a security team to stand around me and keep the beat writers away. <laughs> that's, that's, your, that's your plan. No, actually, I, I wanna, uh, we were talking a little bit about the Boston market. I think I read it in, in one of the Boston papers, I think, uh, maybe by John Tomasi, maybe not by him, if I'm even saying right, Tomasi. Am I, how am I saying it? I think it's Tomasi. Tomasi, okay, yeah. It might have been by him, may not have been, but it's it's an article that you see written in, in a number of other markets too. There's this sort of um, off-season type article, it you know, to the effect that um, this is you know, it'd be like my plan for the Red Sox this off-season, or the Red Sox right. have to acquire these three free agents. And I was right. actually I was actually having a, I mean, this is something that that I think that you and I have talked about. Off air, certainly. This this tension, like I guess I'm, I guess I question outside of the desire to draw page views. Uh, 
I guess I question the wisdom of that sort of piece. I mean, this is this is a little bit of a meta analysis here, but it is something that's sort of like part of the fabric of the off season, and so I think it you know it merits uh, some attention because of that. Um, I, mean, I, I assume that you've seen articles like this, like this is the plan that the this is what the Yankees need to do, this is what the Dodgers need to do. Yeah, I've written one of these plans for ten years. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. I'm sure you say what the Mariners need to do. Right. I've been doing this probably longer than anyone else alive. And so, uh, well, do, I mean, uh, let's see. Okay. So I know you as a nerd. Yes. And I know that um, you you're thinking of of it in this way. Um, there are other writers who will write it that maybe like there was recently a writer for a New York area paper who suggested that the um, Yankees should trade Curtis Granderson to the Phillies for Darren Ruff. I don't know if you saw that. I didn't see that. That seems like a silly maneuver. It seems like a silly maneuver. The argument was like, well, Ruff's a little bit old, but he hit, you know, whatever, 30 home runs, a double-A Redding. Um, yeah. And the point is like, fine, Darren Ruff, sure, uh, he's nice to children and a uh, great guy, helps out around the clubhouse, but he's, pro- he's just not worth, he's just not that good, right? I mean, like, he's, He's going to be, you know, he might get some major league at bats this next season, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, anytime you can trade for a 27 year old DH with no major league experience, you got to jump on it. But, but I guess the, I guess my curious point is like, what is the value? Is it just a, a page? I, don't, I guess I, I don't necessarily know what I'm asking, but there seems like something that's. That is strange, but I mean, what are your intentions when you're doing it? Is it because you know this is the thing that's going to get the most page views at at uh, Lookout Landing? No, you don't write for well, Lookout Landing. That's not that's not where I write. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe you, you may- seem to be very well clued in to the uh, maybe to the, yes. The agent no, no, you dri- no, you you drive traffic over to Lookout Landing because they're like, oh my god, I'm not going to read. Right. I'm not going to read this piece at USS Mariner by Dave Cameron. <laughs> Uh, I think the idea when I started writing these things back in 2003 and why I've continued doing them every offseason is they essentially allow you to put names to ideas and give examples. Uh, and one of the things I tried to make clear in the intro of all of them is that the specific names don't really matter. Uh, the concepts are what you're trying to get across, but you're getting them across in a way uh, that you can put them all together and show how roster construction isn't an isolationist thing where you know, maybe someone in the Boston paper, and I think this might have been one of Tomasi's suggestions, is they should find Mike Napoli, uh, which yeah, I think actually makes a lot of sense. Right-handed pull-power guy, uh, get the dang doubles off the wall, uh, can play first base, can, you know, DH when Ortiz is hurt, can catch some behind, uh, you know, Fulham Mafia and Laverne Way. Um, you know, it's, it's a good landing spot for him. But at the same time, I think you need to look at roster construction as a totality, right? So, like, Mike Napoli doesn't make sense for every team in baseball. Uh, and you have to look at what you already have on hand. Uh, you have to look at how the pieces fit in together and what you can afford, uh, you know, the long-term effects of signing a player who might be blocking a prospect. When you do a post like this, it allows you to hit on a whole bunch of things at once. So, like, the Mariners plan this offseason, the number one thing that people took away from it, I think, is that I like Nick Fisher and I want to pay him way too much money because I uh, projected his contract in, in that piece at seven years, $100 million. Uh, in the piece, I tried to point out that uh, it isn't so much that I'm in love with Nick Fisher as the concept is uh, the Mariners need an outfielder and they need some depth at first base. Fisher offers them both at the same time. And they're in a position where I think they probably need to start borrowing from the future in order to help the present uh, for attendance reasons, for keeping Felix Fernandez reasons. I think there's a lot of argument to be made that the long term uh, has uh, some value that can be shifted to the short term in a, in a the deal with Swisher, I mean, 700 is actually only 14 million a year. Uh, the fact that people didn't like that he was going to get 14 million a year, 37 and 38 is a legitimate complaint, but, you know, it's the same idea. Uh, essentially, the point I was trying to get across is if you trade prospects, like a lot of Mariner fans want to do, traded James Paxson or Nick Franklin or, you know, one of their better young players, you're essentially borrowing from the future to improve the present. If you give someone a long-term deal, they're going to be overpaid at the back end, but you get a deal in terms of annual average value at the front end, it's really the same thing. You're borrowing from the future to improve the present. Uh, so I think the point that I was trying to make is, you know, you can use free agency almost in the same way that you use trades, but for some reason we have a, a more positive outlook of a, of a GM trading prospects for a veteran to help his team than we do of giving 
a free agent a seven-year deal when in actuality it's the, it's the same idea. Yeah, it's so I, it sounds like what, what I'm taking from what you're saying is is that if you're going to write a piece like this, and so maybe the, maybe this is is helping me understand this. If you're going to write a piece like this, you're dealing with concepts. And so what you're saying about Nick Swisher is it's not necessarily Nick Swisher per se that you want to sign. You have a, a an idea of a player, and there happens to be a player available in the free agent market who fits that description, and that player is Nick Swisher. Yeah, so I think the point that I was trying to get across is that the post isn't about signing Nick Swisher at any cost. It's about how do we say what the team needs and show how they could potentially go about getting what they need uh, given the current options available. So last year, I looked at the free agent options available and said, I don't, I don't really want to pay time to what I think he's going to get. I would rather make trades. This year, I looked at it and said, you know, the top end of the free agent market isn't very good, but it's pretty deep. And there's some interesting guys here that you could potentially get some value on and keep all your prospects. Uh, so I'd rather make free agent signings and kind of look at the market as, a, as available as a whole and kind of compare and contrast the different ways you can go about building a roster and kind of uh, look for value between the two markets rather than just saying, oh, we have $25 million to spend, let's go sign the best available hitter, which is, you know, I think probably the point of more of these offseason post-type deals is they look at available free agent and available money and kind of put the two together. I, I would like to encourage people to, at least through the, the post I do on USS Mariner, is, you know, think a little more broadly and see if, uh, you know, there's a, a way to get a better roster out of the same uh, amount of assets that you have uh, rather than just looking at, you know, oh, this is the best free agent hitter available and I have 25 million, so let's get back at 25 million. Right, okay. Yeah, so, 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 so far as these sorts of articles are concerned, the off-season plan articles, that you would advise uh, a to use to use reason, and um, and b uh, maybe right to deal with, I guess the realities of the situation, and um, which includes you know taking into account the sort of the, the available money and or assets that the that the team has that they can use to acquire said players. Yeah, I mean I've, I think that the when these posts are done well. They give you the ability to talk about a lot of moving pieces uh, at one time. So rather than saying the Red Sox should sign Mac Napoli, if you do a totality uh, off-season post, you can kind of show how Napoli would fit into the roster with the other pieces, how they construct their lineup, um, and how much money that would lead them to go pursue upgrades in the starting rotation or fix the outfield or whatever it is else you want the Red Sox to do. Um, and I think that kind of larger, wider view is important, and this is what teams actually do when they're looking at putting together a roster, is come up with a you know a list of goals and try and make them all work together rather than just saying, we want this guy and this is what it's going to cost us to get him. Hey, Cameron, when I was putting together that post on, I guess, uh, what was it, last last Thursday, last Thursday or Friday, the, the results from the contract crowdsourcing, you told me, you said, hey, maybe don't include Dan Heron yep. uh, because it's inevitable that he's going to get traded. Right. He was not, not, there was no chance he was going to get traded. Right. Um, what actually happened? Uh, he became a fake. <laughs> I guess what, <laughs> um, what, what had you so convinced that he was going to get traded? Well, I think, you know, we saw two days prior as Urban Pintana got traded to the Royals for 12, you know, basically the Royals picked up $12 million of this contract for 2013. Uh, Heron had almost exactly the same deal where, you know, the Angels owed him $3.5 million in a buyout, uh, or a $15.5 million salary. So the marginal cost of acquiring Dan Heron for 2013 was $12 million, if you assume the Angels are going to pick up $3.5 million no matter what. Uh, if, if someone thinks, you know, Urban Santana is worth 112. Why wouldn't someone think Dan Heron is worth 112? And it seemed like a, a pretty rational idea. There were a lot of rumors that, you know, multiple teams were calling. Uh, there was speculation about, you know, whether you're down to Boston or Chicago or, um, you know, multiple cities uh, seemed to be in play. Um, the Angels were obviously going to, to tra- try and trade him if they could, and they'd rather get something uh, than let him just hit the market. And then, you know, for whatever reason, a deal with the Cubs fell through Friday night, and the reports indicate that the Cubs actually backed away from trading Carlos Marmol for Dan Heron straight up. 
Um, and that's the year because Carlos Marmol is terrible and overpaid, and Dan Heron is maybe good and maybe underpaid. So uh, I don't think we know exactly what happened, but the end result is the Angels paid Dan Heron to go away, and now Dan Heron's a free agent. Now Dan Heron's a free agent. I guess what's curious to me is Rafael Soriano, um, he opted out of a contract that would have him paid like $13 million in 2013. Is that right? Uh, yeah, something like that, 12 or 13, yeah. Yeah, so that he could get a multi-year deal you know, presumably getting paid something around that or more than that per year. Uh, yeah, I mean, Scott Boris is making noise that he wants him to get like 460 or something, but Scott Boris is crazy. So I would think the Florida was going to land something similar or maybe slightly less that he got last time he was a free agent, so 330 to 336. I mean, do we not suppose – I mean, right, so Soriano is going to, probably going to get paid something like that. Meanwhile, Dan Heron, who's been a successful starter for years – had one poor season with the Diamondbacks, just nominally because he he had a what an inflated home run for fly ball or whatever, um, or that was the tr- that was the year I guess he got traded from the Diamondbacks to the Angels. Um, yes, this is now the second time Jerry Depoto has sold low on Dan Harris. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Right. Of course. And um, and it seems like if you're going to pay Rafael Soriano that much money. I mean, even if you think that you're not going to have Dan Heron starting, isn't would he be worth more than Soriano as a reliever? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question that closer evaluations in free agency don't make any sense. And this is a point that the sabermetric community has been making for, I don't know, 20 years. <laughs> uh, but I think that there's something interesting going on with Heron in that, you know, there are a lot of smart teams out there. There are a lot of teams out there who probably would love to have Dan Heron on a one-year deal, and none of them traded for Dan Heron last week. The Cubs apparently got close and then decided they didn't want to do it. Uh, the other teams that were reportedly interested didn't pull the trigger either, and then the Angels paid him to go away. So, um, as I wrote about today, I, I just wonder if, like, you know, there's a medical red flag that the public's not aware of, uh, where Dan Heron's back issue is maybe not a cover for some kind of uh, arm issue or some more serious medical issue that people expect to linger. Because um, I think if you if you look at it and say our options are to believe that all 30 teams in baseball forgot that Dan Heron has been a good pitcher for the last 10 years and they're not willing to pay him like a two-win pitcher on a one-year deal with no long-term risk. Or we can say all 30 teams in baseball know something about Dan Heron's health, and that's why he's a free agent now. The latter seems more likely to be true. I, I just It's hard for me to believe that, you know, 30 teams don't see Dan Heron's value. Uh, you know, it's one thing when one team gets down on a player because he had a bad year, because they don't like his personality or something, but when all 30 teams decide that Dan Heron's not worth 112, it feels like something's going on. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, two things before I let you go here. Uh, one is that the um, in the notes today, um, I I, I uh, put up a, a crowdsourcing form with regard to Billy Hamilton's whole career. Billy Hamilton is uh, probably the fastest uh, guy, fastest prospect um, in baseball, you know, of his generation, you know, over the last however many years. Maybe uh, ever, any generation. I think Keith Lawson, he got him at 3-4-9 home to first in the Rising Stars game on Saturday. And what's average? Do we know what's average? Uh, good is considered like 3-9. Okay. Um, four, four, a little over 4 is normal. 3-5 is crazy. And what are you? What are you first or home to home uh, first? Like 17-2 probably. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, so, all right. So, very fast. We know that. Stole tons of bases this year. Um, and and he also uh, had a very good game in the in the Rising Stars game in the Arizona Fall League, which whatever value that has in terms of actual analysis, like it's still a, it's still a conspicuous feat, right? It's like a thing he did on a slightly larger stage. Sure. Um, he also uh, only has seven home runs and in about 1,700 plate appearances in the minors. Um, we don't we don't were there questions about the bat, and he had to be moved off shortstop. Right. I mean, he could very well turn out to be a plus center fielder because of his speed. We don't know, though. Right. I mean, converting to the outfield, and I think there is, you know, center field is still an up-the-middle position, but the bat requirements are higher in center field than they are at shortstop. So he's now going to have to hit more in order to be a good center fielder, especially considering he's learning a new position, and we don't really know if he's going to be one of these fast guys that takes bad routes and isn't as good as he should be, or if he's actually going to turn into, you know, Mike Hamlin or Juan Pierre or something. Okay, right. Uh, and right, and so Juan Pierre actually had a major league career, right? Yeah. But it, it given the amount of excitement that there appears to be 
uh, that, that Hamilton is generating currently among analysts, a Juan Pierre career, while great, would seem maybe even like a disappointment relative to that. I, guess, I think it depends on who you talk to, right? Okay. So, I mean, yeah. I think uh, I I don't know anybody who thinks Billy Hamilton is going to be a superstar. I think there's a lot of people who think Billy Hamilton is really fast and really exciting and really fun to watch and is going to top out as a good, not great player. And that's basically who Juan Pierre was. Like, I know Pierre got a lot of crap uh, from the favorite metrics community during his career because he didn't walk in for power and we undervalued defense for a really long time, but you know, he's like a long, long Pierre's career and he was a two and a half, three win player, uh, for a pretty good while and, uh, had a nice long, you know, 10, 15 year career as an, you know, generally above average everyday player. I think that's kind of Billy Hamilton as well. Uh, you know, maybe he'll be faster and even a better base stealer than one Pierre, but I, I think that's probably the kind of career we're looking at here. Okay. So, uh, so I asked, I asked readers to say, uh, in terms of Billy Hamilton's career war, Zero or below, one to ten, eleven to twenty-five, twenty-six to fifty, or above fifty. Well, anyone who voted above fifty is crazy. Yeah. Okay. Fine. All right. Fine. Can you actually? Yeah, I mean, could, is there anyone you could project? I mean, could you project Mike Trout right now as above fifty? Well, sure, but he's already ten. So you're only projecting yeah, for forty. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're the, the bar is giving you lower. So you've already twenty percent of the way there. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think like. To, to project 50 career war for a young player, you basically have to have Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, Jason Hayward, Giancarlo Stanton type early career major league numbers. There's not a minor league prospect anywhere you can pr- project for 50 war. Maybe, maybe not even Bryce Harper is a minor leaguer. Like, to project 50 plus career war for a guy, uh, before he gets to the big leagues is, is nutty. Jerkson Profar? You're not going to give put a 50 no, on him? No, I'm not, there's, there's no way I'm giving Jerkson Profar 50 career war. I mean, like, 50 career war is, Borderline Hall of Famer. Yeah, it, that's actually what's funny is that Mike Trout is essentially like, well, like a sixth of his way to being a Hall of Famer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. r- roughly, yeah, right. right? Yeah. Uh, I think when, when you look at the guys who've been as good at 21 as Trout has, most of them are in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> like, I think, you know, it, it sounds ridiculous to say that Trout is on a Hall of Fame career arc, but, I mean, when you're that good at age 20, you, you generally end up in Cooperstown. Right. Okay, so uh, what are you saying for Hamilton then? Uh, I'd say 11 to 25. I think that, you know, gives him 5 to 15 year career as a average-ish player. Um, injuries could obviously push him closer to 0 to 10, but I, you know, assuming he's healthy, I think 11 to 25 is a fair bet. So you think, you think that maybe, I mean, maybe partially what I'm doing is misreading. Uh, I, I'm saying, I'm seeing excitement. Um, and, and maybe I, it's, it's me, like I'm confusing that with, um, with, uh, um, I guess, enthusiasm about Hamilton's future as a major leaguer. Right. Uh, Maybe. I mean, I don't know. What What do you think Hamilton's going to get? Uh, I think, I mean, I don't know. One. I said one, I would say one to ten, although I think 11-25, I, I, you know, that's a reasonable guess, too, I think. Uh, sorry, I mean, without spoiling the results, what, what's the voting at right now? Um, I don't know. Oh, you haven't calculated it yet. Okay. No, I, so. I'll, do that, I'll do that tomorrow. Uh, but there have seemed like it seemed to me like probably well we have we have a lot in um I actually I could actually have have that by the uh, by the uh, end of the broadcast how about um, that, that's a good idea because I mean you don't need to have a huge sample and it's stabilize pretty quickly my no, guess no, it, is that yeah. you're going to come in at somewhere between zero to ten and eleven to twenty five I think people uh, overall understand that Billy Hamilton is a great prospect he's a good prospect uh, you know he's probably a top twenty five top fifty prospect. Mm-hmm. Based on almost entirely on his speed, um, but I don't, I don't I haven't talked to anybody who thinks Billy Hamilton is headed to all of it. Okay, well, over half of people now are saying so. It's there are two two hundred ninety three votes in, and over okay. half those people have said eleven to twenty five. Right, eleven to twenty five is uh, the safe. Uh, you know, if you're going to pick one, um, and you have to pick one rather than giving some kind of range, right. eleven to twenty five makes the most sense. I mean, zero to ten is kind of pessimistic for a guy with his speed just because he can hang around for a long time as a pinch runner or utility guy. Uh, you know, it's not totally out of the realm of possibility that he has a 15-year career as a pinch runner. Right, and right. So, you know, one war per year and gets to 11.25 that way. Um, so, I, you know, 0 to 10 is a little pessimistic. 11 to 25 seems right. Anything above 25, you're probably too optimistic about the bat. Anything above 50, you don't understand prospect evaluation. Okay. All right, and then uh, I, uh, one thing before you go, I want to ask you, um, 
Uh, now, um, the baseball winter meetings are coming up in about a month. Yep. Like the second to sixth or somewhere around there, third to sixth maybe? Yeah. Yeah, third um, to seventh. Uh, last year, you went down with David Appleman, and or it was in Texas, I guess, right? With the Dallas, yeah. Yeah, all right. So you were there. Appleman was there. I guess Eno was there. Uh, yeah, Eno was there. Uh, Mike Cifo was there. Uh, David Lorelo was there. Wendy Thurm was there. Oh, yeah, okay, so a lot of people. Now, uh, this year, I don't know why he's did it or, or why you let it happen, uh, but David Appleman has permitted me to go as well. Yeah, he had a moment of insanity that I couldn't run it. Yeah, well, that's what I was curious about. Uh, what do you think is the value added about having someone uh, someone like me there? Uh, well, you're assuming. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're kind of begging the question, right? I don't think there is value added. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I think value taken away. So we have to your hotel and your flight, and it's going to cost us a lot of money, and we're going to have to fire someone because you're going to, you know, uh, cost us a lot of money. While you're yeah. There. All right. What do you, I mean, what am I going to do there? I mean, I'm very excited to go. Let me tell you, I'm very yeah. excited to go. My guess is you're going to find like some kind of like country themed brothel. Yeah. And uh, you're going to hook up with a whole bunch of people with like, you know, Billie Jean and Mary Lou. You mean, lo- people with low moral, m- moral standards. Yeah. I-, I think you're going to find the seedy parts of Nashville. Mm-hmm. And while the rest of us are reporting on, you know, uh, what's happening or not happening in a hotel, you're going to be at some country music bar doing karaoke. And, yeah. uh, you know, maybe your not rest posts will be hilarious for the five minutes before we become horrified and take them down. Okay. Yeah. That sounds about right. Sounds great. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you are. Yeah, I'm excited. And, and is it, did, uh, did you come up with a roommate? Yeah. A rooming situation yeah, yet? Right. So it, uh, to temper your ex- ex- excitement, you're rooming with Eno. So that should make you now scared. Oh, right. Doesn't he have a machine or something? He has some kind of weird sleeping thing that everyone should feel free to ask him about in his chats every Friday. Yeah. He's like, I, like, there's a possibility he's like a, like a Jamaican robot, right? Like a weird. Uh, yeah, I think it's like, uh, one third Jamaican, one third German. So it's either going to smoke pot with you or try and kill you. Yeah. Well, no, Germans are very, Germans are very sweet. They're, they're people who love beer and laughing and wearing, uh, socks with sandals. <laughs> this is now the most racist podcast in uh, yeah. America. No, you're allowed to be racist against other white people. It's it's one of, <laughs> oh, it's one of the rules. Yeah, that's it. I know. I know. Uh, in the South, that might it, it, some of the rules are different, but uh, yeah. on the on the um, <laughs> on the pod, yeah, the, in the in the world of podcasting, uh, white people being racist against white people is entirely acceptable. Okay. Well, uh, I, I don't know that uh, Peter Appleman will agree after we get sued by a whole bunch of angry white people, but we'll see. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I have nothing to say about that, but I do uh, want to thank you for coming on the podcast and answering uh, more questions than you should have. Uh, yeah. Well, this went way too long. But... Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, that is Dave Cameron, our managing editor, Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.